Well, welcome to the hills. It is such a privilege each week to think that people, not just in states across the country, but in countries across the world, are joining us for these online worship experiences. Uh, it's such a blessing, and I hope you are encouraged. We're encouraged knowing that you are with us. Now, if you're a part of the Hills family here in Tarrant County, when we temporarily discontinued in-person worship, we said at that time that we're going to let our local schools be our guide in when it's safe to gather again. Now, a couple of weeks ago, that was until October. But the dates keep changing. It's been a very fluid situation. And now many of our school districts in Tarrant County are starting to meet in August, some online only, some in person. That means that we're going to get together as a leadership and reevaluate when we can start to have in-person worship. And you will be getting a word from us very soon. So please join us in praying about that. Through this month, though, I'm going to be teaching a series on marriage. And let me explain why by showing you a picture. Now, this is Lawrence Ripple. Now, he doesn't look very happy, does he? He made the news several years ago. He's 71 years old. He walked into a bank in Kansas City and robbed it took the money and went to the bank lobby and just sat down on a bench waiting for the police to come arrest him. When he was asked why, he explained, I would rather go to jail than spend one more day in the house with my wife. <laughs> now, even more funny is that when he stood before the judge to be sentenced, the judge sentenced him to six months of house arrest. <laughs> now, how many of us feel like during this pandemic, we've been under house arrest. Uh, we've had a lot of extra time with our families, and that has been a blessing. But let's be honest, it's also been a challenge. Uh, I don't know of any season in our marriage where Jamie and I have spent more time together, and almost every evening we're taking long walks. And about two months into the pandemic, we're walking, and she turns and says, now, don't take this the wrong way, but I'm ready to be with someone besides you. Okay, haven't you felt that? Don't, not too hard if you're sitting next to your mate. But haven't we all kind of felt that just a little bit? I was talking with a very wise minister friend, reflecting on some of the counseling they're doing in their church. And he said this, this pandemic has caused me to realize that a lot of our couples are barely married. And so what we're going to do is we're going to spend a few weeks just talking about focusing on marriage. And we need to begin with some common understandings. We're going to have three. And here's the first. We're going to define marriage. We're going to define marriage in this series as a monogamous relationship between a man and a woman. Now, I know there are other ways to define marriage, but this definition is historically the Christian definition. It is globally the Christian definition. Through history and around the world, this is what the Spirit has led the church to teach, that marriage is a monogamous union between a man and a woman. The second thing I want us to be clear about, at no point in this series, although I am going to affirm and exalt the institutional marriage, at no point do I want anyone to hear that the single life is a less than life. Okay? Single people are not broken. They don't need to be fixed. Uh, they don't need someone to complete them. I remind you that we follow a man who we say was the most complete and perfect person who ever lived, and he was single. He never married. He never had sex. So let your mind marinate on that for a while. 
throughout the church's history for centuries, the single Christian was exalted as the truly spiritual Christian because they had so much time to give to the kingdom. So let's be very, very clear. Here at the Hills, we want our church to be full of single people, never married, divorced, widowed. Single Christians are a powerful witness to our church family. Now, to that end, we thought this might be a good time in our church to do a little relational snapshot of our church. And so there's a number on the screen right now, and we want every member to uh, text either Hills Single or Hills Couple to that number. It'll take you to a link. We're going to ask you to fill out a survey. Take about five minutes. Now, text it. Don't do the link right now while I'm preaching, okay? You can do that later. But we just want to get some information about how we're doing relationally so we can serve you better, and I hope you'll help us with that. Now, I want to say quickly to all our singles, we're going to talk about marriage in the month of August. You don't get the month off. You don't get to say, well, I'm not watching because I'm not married, okay? First off, marriage is very important to the church, and I haven't done a series on marriage in 14 years. It's time. But second, I want you to hear this. The Bible says all Scripture is profitable for the training and the equipping of the man and woman of God. All Scripture, not just the parts that you relate to the most. If you as a single person will pray each week, Lord, give me ears to hear. I promise you every week you're going to glean truths from the Word of God that are going to grow you as a disciple of Jesus. And the third thing we got to get on the table. What I am going to teach these next few weeks is going to require a Christian worldview. Now there's tons and tons of material out there from a secular point of view giving advice for marriage. And in a secular viewpoint, marital conflict is what I want versus what you want. But as Christians, our first question is, what does God want? And so from that perspective, I'm going to be doing this teaching because marriage is God's idea. And so it should be a big deal to us whether we're married or not. And so we're going to call this series Pick and choose. And here's why I chose that title. So when Jamie and I picked each other, I thought choice is over. Oh, was I can so wrong. The next thing I know, we got to go choose flowers. We got to go choose invitations. We have to choose font on the invitation. We have to choose dishes. I said, Jamie, we don't need to choose dishes. I just went to the grocery store and I bought some dishes. Oh, but we had to choose dishes. And here's what I learned even before I got married. That marriage is a lifetime of decisions, of saying yes to one thing and no to something else. What we're going to do for a few weeks is we're going to look at some of the most important choices we must make to have the marriage we want to have. And maybe the most important one is this. You've got to choose die over my. And I'm going to unpack that with the most important verse in the Bible on marriage. And here it is. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. And here's the big idea this week. Your marriage needs the gospel. 
You see, a Christian worldview affirms that we are doing life as married and as single believers in a world that has been broken and marred by sin, by rebellion against God. Not only that, but it affirms we've been broken and marred by sin. We're flawed. But mostly it affirms that the death and the resurrection of Jesus is the hope and the healing for the brokenness. But the gospel goes even farther. It affirms that Jesus' example of sacrificial love is our pattern for responding to brokenness. Brokenness in me, brokenness in you, brokenness in the world. The way we respond as Christians is the pattern of the sacrificial love of Jesus. So the best thing we can do for our marriage is to believe in the gospel and then to behave like the gospel. And so we're going to begin this series like you ought to begin any study of any important subject. We're going to start with Jesus. Now, Jesus was a single man, but he had a lot to say about marriage. Jesus had a very high view of marriage. You notice many of his parables were about getting married. Uh, he often referred to himself as the groom. He said the kingdom will be inaugurated with a marriage feast. In fact, Jesus' first miracle, he bailed a buddy out at his wedding because they ran out of wine. So Jesus loved marriage, even though he was not a married man. And we're just going to explore some of his big ideas about that. We're going to start with this verse, Matthew 24. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. Now, this is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. So, so Jesus said, despite what many people say about how they know when Jesus is going to come back, Jesus said, no, you know, it's going to be normal. People are going to be having wedding showers and planning weddings right up to the end. Now, this is important because it's saying that the institution of marriage will last and this runs counter to the view of many in our culture who question whether marriage has a future. So recently in New York Magazine, which is not a Christian magazine, a woman named Heather Haverleski wrote an article titled, Is Marriage Obsolete? She writes, Isn't it reasonable to question the value of a legal contract written in ink on paper that involves disastrously punitive forms of dissolution, particularly when it's paired with an enormously expensive ceremony that often includes allusions to obedience and lifelong mutual suffering and death of all things. And there are a host of inconveniences to being married, along with untold drudgery, monotony, frustration, and regret. Considering all that, what could possibly be the point of this out? dated charade. A lot of people think that way. That's why we see the rise, the rapid rise in our culture of people living together saying, what's the point of actually getting married? And yet Jesus says, marriage is going to last. 
right up to the end, people are going to be planning weddings and I'm going with Jesus. And here's why. Because no culture has found a better solution for aloneness, for intimacy, and for a stable child-rearing environment than God's gift of faithful monogamous marriage. And no, living together is not basically the same thing. I know I'm treading on some thin ice here. Some of you are listening to me right now and you're uncomfortable. Give me some grace here and let me say why I said such a strong thing. Cohabitation is not the same thing as marriage. It cannot create oneness like God's gift of marriage because it's a contract based on mutual mistrust. It's an arrangement that says we're going to make it easy for each of us to bail if we want to. It is not a covenant based on mutual commitment. And so when you move in together and you get into bed together and you say, let's not ruin it by getting married. What you're honestly saying is, I don't love you enough to close off all my options. I want some of you, but I don't want all of you. I want nakedness, but I don't want knowledge. In Scripture, the act of sexual union of man and woman is often called knowing each other. Man and woman are the only creatures God made that have sex face to face. Because God created sex as a way for man and woman to be completely vulnerable and truly transparently get to know each other. And here's the thing. You are never going to risk being fully known when you know the other person can bail. See, sex does not create oneness. Sex celebrates oneness. And when sex is just reduced to bodies, and, and by the way, that's my problem with sex education in school. It's not that kids shouldn't learn about that. It's that sex education too often is just this is this and this is this and put them together and you have sex. And sex is more than just the union of bodies. And when it's just about bodies and it's not about I want your heart and I want your soul. Souls get wounded. And you know what I said is true. And right now, a lot of people are listening to me. And your soul still bears the scar of the times when you stepped outside of God's design. And you realize now they wanted my body. They didn't want me. I think that's why marriage is going to last because we were created to desire a relationship where somebody is going to move toward me in love, no matter how tough it gets. So I want to go back to that same article in New Yorker magazine. She answers her own question about the obsolescence of marriage this way. So why do I love this torturous state of affairs so much? The daily companionship, the shared household costs, the tax breaks are not enough. It's because some of the peak moments of a marriage are when you share your anxieties, your fears, your longing, even your horrors. That's why sickness and death are key to marriage vows. Because there's nothing more divine than being able to say, today I am really, truly at my worst, knowing it won't make your spouse run for the hills. My husband has seen my worst before. We both know that our worst is likely to get worse from here. And somehow... That feels 
like grace. We were made to desire grace. To know that someone is going to love me no matter. And that's why secular universities that compare married couples and their level of happiness to couples that cohabitate consistently show at every conceivable metric married couples are doing better. They are happier. They are raising healthier children. They're doing much better financially. And get this, they're having more sex and enjoying it more. Now, I know the sitcoms don't say that. In the sitcoms, the couples that are the people, they look so attractive and they wear cool clothes and they live in cool apartments even though they never go to work. And they're always hooking up. And every third thing they say is really, really funny. But the research says that's not the real story. The real story is that marriage is good. It was created by God and it's good and it's going to stick around. And God wants marriages to stick. And so that's why Jesus was frustrated in his culture. Because a system had evolved where men could just get rid of their wives for the least reason and justify it. And they came and asked Jesus what he thought about that. Can a man just divorce his wife any reason. And here's how Jesus replied. Haven't you already replied that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. So not only will God's institution of marriage last, but Jesus says that God wants our marriages to last. And one consequence of living in a broken world is that many don't. I know I'm talking to a lot of people right now and you have been through the pain of a marriage that failed. And I want you to know at no point in this series am I going to try to beat up on people who've been through the pain of divorce. You've had enough pain. In fact, the last sermon in this series is going to be a sermon you've never heard before. We're going to talk about how as Christians, if we've been through a divorce, do we honor God after our marriage has been broken. But we must teach what Jesus said and what Jesus said is God wants our marriages to last. In fact, Jesus made it real clear. Divorce is not a command. Divorce is a concession. God allowed it because there was a culture that was abusing women. And he, he allowed legislation to protect them. But let's be very clear. God created marriage. Divorce is man-made. It was never God's idea. Not only that, but Jesus said divorce is an amputation. It's not a separation. You're taking something that is one and splitting it. And whenever you split one, there is going to be great pain. In fact, did you know whenever I have preached on divorce, the most affirmation I get is from divorced people. 
who tell me, preacher, preach it clear and hard. I don't want anyone to go through what we've been through. So instead of dignifying divorce, what Jesus did in his answer was he elevated marriage. They were saying, can divorced people remarry? And Jesus said, should married people be getting divorces? It reminds me of the story of the empty nest couple. A few weeks earlier, they had married off their youngest daughter. The phone rings. The father answers. The wife can tell he's talking to the daughter and they're having a serious conversation. So when he comes back into the room, uh, he, she asked what it was about. And he replied, well, they had their very first fight and she wants to come home. And the wife said, what'd you tell her? And he said, I told her she was home. You see, when we made our vows, we were speaking vertically, not just horizontally. We were pledging not just before God, we were pledging to God our intent to love an imperfect person in the face of a future where there could be radical change. And you know what? When most of us made those vows, we had no idea how radical that promise we were making really was. It was as radical as Jesus' call to discipleship because both involve the daily choice to choose die over my. So let's go back to Mark 8. The best verse in the Bible about marriage. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Yes, marriage will last. Marriage should last. And here's the big idea from Jesus. A married disciple will be last. When marriage is surrendered to Christ, there will be many, M-I-N-I, -I, many funerals to attend every day. Because a disciple of Jesus is the first to choose to be last. This is not upper level Christianity. This is not graduate school Christianity. This is what we signed up for. We're following a man who put a cross on his back and he was first to be last. This is what it meant when Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. And here's the challenge in my marriage. There's another kingdom out there that I have huge affection for. The kingdom of me. And in the kingdom of me, the primary principle is my overdie. And the daily choice I must make, whose kingdom is going to rule my marriage? Let me illustrate that. So when Jamie and I first married, we took up playing tennis together. Sometimes together, sometimes she would play with her girlfriends and I would play with different guys. Now, if you're a tennis player, you know there is nothing like a can of brand new tennis balls. In fact, even the way it sounds when you open it, do you hear that pop? That is so awesome. They smell new. They look good. They bounce well. 
So I had a big match after work with a friend of mine. I was so excited. I bought a brand new can of tennis balls. I couldn't wait to go home, meet him on the court, and go pop. And I, I opened it up. No pop. Because Mary, Jamie got my brand new can of tennis balls, and she took it and played a match that morning with one of her girlfriends. No pop. And I was mad. I was mad that whole match. And I can tell you the street I was on in Abilene, Texas, when the Holy Spirit said to me, you would die for that woman, but you're angry at her over a can of tennis balls. And here's the thing I want you to hear. I didn't have an anger problem. I had a kingdom problem. I wanted to be first. And Jesus was calling me to be last. Okay, now David Meyer, I'm going to toss these to you to hold them. I want them back because they're new. <laughs> the best advice I could give a married or a single person about relationships is simply this. Be like Jesus and go last. But that reminds me of the story of the mom. She had a five-year-old boy and a three-year-old boy and she's making pancakes and they start to argue who's going to get the first pancake. They each want the first pancake and mom thinks this is a teachable moment. So she sets them down and says, now what would Jesus do? Jesus would go last and say, you have the first pancake. And they both were silent for a moment and finally the five-year-old looked at the three-year-old and said, you be Jesus. <laughs> now, isn't that the truth? You be Jesus. Well, here's the thing. At our church, we exist to make and grow followers of Jesus. And what I'm understanding now that I did not understand when I was first married. God wants to use my marriage to make me a better follower of Jesus. And God wants to use my marriage to help others become followers of Jesus because everybody married or single wants to believe there's a love out there that would move toward me no matter how tough it got or no matter how far I wandered away and God has chosen Christian marriage as the billboard to the world there's a love like that Here's what Paul says in Ephesians 5, and we're going to spend a lot of time here next week. As the Scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So I said earlier that your marriage needs the gospel. But there's another big truth I want you to remember. The gospel needs your marriage. The gospel needs your marriage to be a billboard for Jesus' relationship to His bride. And so as we continue this series, I want us to realize our marriages have a bigger goal than just our mutual happiness. I want you to think about what I just said, that God is calling your marriage to be about more than how happy you can be. The purpose of your marriage 
is to put the greatest story in the world on display. The story of a love that is so great, it would die for you. And when we make that choice, that fundamental decision every day to pick up our cross and say, die before my, that one choice makes all the other choices we have to make that day so much clearer. So I know I'm going to date myself here, but before Jimmy Fallon, there was Jay Leno. And before Jay Leno, there was someone named Johnny Carson. And many years ago on the Johnny Carson show, he was interviewing an eight-year-old boy from West Virginia. The reason he was there was because he had actually saved a couple of his friends in a coal mine. And so Johnny was interviewing him and it became very clear this young boy was a follower of Jesus. And so Johnny asked him in front of the whole audience, well, now, did you go to Sunday school last week? And he said, yes. What did you learn? He said, we learned about when Jesus turned water into wine. And of course, the audience exploded in laughter. And you could see Johnny smirking, but trying to hold it together. And he said to the young boy, well, what did you learn from that story? And, and the boy wasn't ready for the question. So he squirmed a little bit. And then finally, he looked up and smiled and said, I guess if you're going to have a wedding, you ought to invite Jesus to it. Well, you know what? A lot of us invited Jesus to our wedding. Every day, we need to be inviting Jesus to our marriage. And so, let's close with prayer. I'm going to ask you to start the prayer. Pray silently. Pray with your mate. Pray with your family. Pray out loud. If you're a single, it doesn't matter. Here's what, the prayer I want you to pray. Your kingdom come into our home. Would you just bow right now and pray that prayer? So God, my prayer is that you would fill us all with your Holy Spirit that we would start every day deciding again, die before my, married or single, that we would live in such a selfless way that the world would know there is a love out there that is for everyone that will always run toward us, even die for us. We pray this because we believe it will honor Jesus. Amen.